Welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Sean McKenna. Listeners, does the name Brian Johnson ring a bell? Right now is the very first time in human history where you can say with a straight face, you may not die. You believe that? Oh, there's, there's no question. It's hard to believe tech millionaire Brian Johnson is 46 years old. But no matter his chronological age, he's striving for the biological age of an 18 year old. So I read an article about Brian Johnson in Time magazine last year. He's a multi millionaire tech entrepreneur that's working on a life extension regimen called Blueprint. So I visited the website, and right now it has a lot of merch. So there's a blood orange flavored longevity mix, a dietary supplement with tons of vitamins, and shirts and hats with the slogan Don't Die. There's also Don't Die meetups, and one of these apparently took place in Tokyo on January 13th. They seem to be looking for a host for another one on February 17th, if you're interested. Anyway, even if you don't know Brian Johnson's name, you may have heard about the things he's been doing to try to reduce his biological age, including taking 111 pills daily, injecting his teenage son's plasma into his 46 year old body, and sleeping with a tiny jetpack attached to his penis to monitor nighttime erections. It may sound extreme, but Johnson says he sees himself as kind of a guinea pig in a broader societal quest to stop us from aging. Other wealthy individuals like Jeff Bezos and Peter Thiel are also investing in this kind of anti aging effort. But we always hear about these stories from an American point of view. After I read the Time article, I kind of wondered what Japan's take on the immortality project was. So, starting January 20th, the Japan Times began publishing a series of long features themed on the concept of immortality. Alex K.T. Martin looked at the historical myths surrounding the pursuit of eternal life here in East Asia. Tomoko Otake tackled the science of life extension as it is in the present. And diving into the ideas driving the tech sector was my colleague Elizabeth Beattie, who's joining me on today's podcast to share what she discovered. Hey, Elizabeth. So we've only got so much time in life. Let's not waste any more of it. Are we any closer to living forever?、Uh, in a word, no.、Uh, <laughs> nothing will enable us to continue living as we do as present. And love to start the podcast off on a nice, morbid <laughs> little note there.、Um, but basically, in this piece, I did discover what drives some of us to pursue immortality.、Mm -hmm. uh, also, some of the different methods that people are exploring. And something that really did emerge was how we feel about death is incredibly personal. And the way we seek to ground our lives in meaning is also a very personal thing. Yeah, I feel like this immortality series we've run kind of materialized in part from personal discussions that we had about, you know, as grim as this sounds, death and dying, <laughs> right? Maybe I'd just seen the Barbie movie, I don't know.、Um, but I can remember having coffees with you, and we were really tried to put into words what it was we're concerned with and kind of found that a bit difficult. Yeah, it was like our own little death meetup, actually, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah.、Um, yeah, I think this is a conversation that, that people do actually want to have, even need to have,、yeah. um, because it is something that we all face.、Uh, what's really interesting, too, is being a non Japanese speaker living in Japan, you don't necessarily have the vocabulary needed to talk about these things with, with Japanese friends.、Mm. Um, people's perspectives here are also quite different. I think that's partly because of longer lifespans and something which came up a few times in the conversations that、uh, we had and that I had while working on this piece was kind of a, a bit of a cultural difference and a bit of a 
a difference in outlook, maybe. Right. Well, we spoke to our Japanese colleagues, and of course, they have the same feelings. Um, kind of as you mentioned before, Japan's population is one of the oldest, if not the oldest in the world. And it's a country that lives kind of under the threat of large natural disasters, just like the one we saw at the start of the year. So the precarity of life has to be something people are forced to reckon with maybe more often than not. Mm-hmm. All right, let me embarrass you for a second and read a passage from your piece. Should I just sniff out of the room for a moment? <laughs> <laughs> Don't be embarrassed. Death has always bookended life. It's referred to as life's one certainty, the great equalizer. But our unease about this fact has persevered, spurring quests for eternal life through medicine or spirituality. Through conversations I've had with friends, colleagues, family, and interviewees, it's evident that how we feel about death and dying varies greatly. Some view it like a veil that we must pass through when our time comes. Others speak of it akin to a terrifying sudden grab from the dark. Some consider the concept too morbid to even entertain. I read that beautifully, Sean. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Yeah, I think Alex's piece, uh, this really great piece he did, it really goes into the efforts of Buddhist monks um, who have tried to confront or stave off death, which included these really intense uh, kind of meditations and the idea that you could kind of continue to be in that state long after the physical body has expired was was one of the themes he examined in that piece. Yeah, regular listeners may recall that I went to a meditation retreat last year on Mount Koya in Wakayama Prefecture. That's where the monk Kukai, also known as Kobodaishi, is enshrined. He traveled to China in the year 804 to study esoteric teachings, and he brought back knowledge and practices that would later form the basis of Shingon Buddhism in Japan. Kukai is kind of believed to have entered a state of eternal meditation upon his death, which I thought of as kind of a form of eternal being. Um, His mausoleum is called Okunoin, and that temple and the cemetery around it are considered one of the holiest places in Japan. Yeah, religion, of course, plays a really big part in how we perceive Mm. death in our culture. So it it, it figures that it would play a part in how we perceive immortality as well. You spoke to a guy named Adam Bubin. Yeah, so Adam is a philosophy lecturer, and he spends a lot of time digging into questions like, would our lives still have purpose if we were immortal? Um, He spoke a little bit about this notion of conditional immortality. So basically, would immortality be more attractive if you didn't have to age or if there was an off switch? He he said we tend to use, uh, in part, risk as a, a driving force in our lives. And so there's this argument that if we could live forever, that we wouldn't have the same sense of risk. But then from Adam's perspective, he said we would actually, we would just encounter different kinds of risks. Mm-hmm. Uh, something really interesting that he said was that there's something of a personality divide between those of us who think, you know, around 80 years old is is enough, enough time to be on this earth, and those of us who want to live forever. And it was quite interesting because I was speaking to two of our colleagues about this, and they fell on either side of that divide. So, yeah, one unequivocally was like, yes to immortality, and the other said, no, I want a rich, full life, but I want it to end. So uh, interesting to see that philosophical debate very much alive and kind of represented. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed talking to Adam because he's very honest about how he feels about death. He felt a less of a sense of fear, which is really common, and more a sense of sadness because we tend to see our lives as made up of projects, he said, and he felt like whatever legacy building is attempted is one day going to be gone. Mm. 
This is where technologists enter. So they seem to be the ones who are defining visions of what anti-aging techniques might look like in the future. One of the ones you mentioned in your piece was called mind uploading. Can you explain what that is? So mind uploading, which sounds straight out of an episode of Black Mirror. I, <laughs> yeah. I actually think there is a Black Mirror episode about mind uploading. Yeah. But um, it's it's basically how it sounds. So it, it's the notion that we could essentially digitize our minds and therefore live indefinitely. Um, and in some cases, we would be we wouldn't be constrained to a human form. Uh, and one proponent of mind uploading in Japan is Masataka Watanabe, and he's an author and associate professor at University of Tokyo. And he thinks mind uploading technology could be available as early as in twenty years. Twenty. Wow. Yeah, so not long away at all. He's working on this digitized version of the brain, which he wants to try on himself as well. And he would essentially achieve this through a brain-machine interface using fine electrodes, which would be attached to the brain. Uh, and he says this approach would be seamless because it would be achieved by connecting the device to a living brain before transferring uh, shared memories uh, rather than the brain having having to be dead, basically. Yeah, so this is actually an interesting part in your piece because he then kind of brings up a lot of ethical concerns. Uh, he's kind of done the research on that front as well, right? Yeah, so we we kind of had quite a wild discussion about all the, <laughs> all the kind of hypotheticals that, that come with this notion of mind uploading uh -huh. because obviously it would change our society a lot. And one idea he brought up was this notion of forcible uploading. That's where like an authority, like a, a government, uh, gets people to upload their minds as a way to reduce the population as an economical solution to poverty or, or overpopulation, for example. And even he said that was a, a black mirror kind of scenario. Right, right. So obviously we'd need to have laws in regards to uh, who would store the cloud where these minds are uploaded uh, and who would architect these laws, basically, to, to protect those people. Tell us about Joe Strout. He seems to take a different approach to achieving the same goal. So Joe Strout is one of the founders of Carbon Copies. And Carbon Copies, like you said, it's, it's a bit of a different uh, school of thought, where the approach towards mind uploading would be a slicing and then scanning the brain in order to create the copy of a person, essentially. Mm. He believes that uploading pets, for example, would likely be a precursor to human trials. And one of the reasons is because an animal's brain is smaller than a human with considerably less neurons. Strout also talked uh, about the ethics surrounding the kind of technology. And he thinks that we would see in the future a populace that comprises biological people, people with minds uploaded into some kind of virtual environment where they live, and people who have non-biological or robotic bodies that house their uploaded minds. Right. Which one would you want to be? I think I'm old school. I think I I think I'll just keep my mind as it is. <laughs> oh, really? I'd go for the robot body. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess it depends how good the robot is. I mean, do you get robot abs? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, but Strout basically believes in a hundred years. Uh, which is a considerably longer time frame than uh, Watanabe gave. But he thinks people will look back and think it was strange that humans used to just die. So, Sean, I think my story about tech and its approaches to immortality 
I, I found there were a few Japanese companies kind of looking into these themes. And when I was reading Tomoko's piece, it felt to me like Japanese scientists are more concerned with practical solutions to helping us age better, not stopping the aging process altogether. Right. So Tomoko's piece is titled Living to 100, If Not Forever, in Good Health. And she spoke to Makoto Nakanishi, a professor at the University of Tokyo's Institute for Medical Science, and asked him about whether immortality was in the cards. And he said that he doesn't think it's achievable with our bodies and points out that lifespans are pretty rigidly set at 120 tops. Mm -hmm. Um, so, like, we've never seen a human being who's lived to 150. I don't think we've seen someone live to 130, actually. Mm. But many people have lived to 120, if you look at the span of human existence. So, a lot of scientists and researchers in this field in Japan are looking at people here who live past the age of 100. And they're studying their cells and genetic makeup to see if there's something special about these specific people that gives them an advantage that we could pass on to others. It's really interesting, and it, it kind of backs up the idea of the technologists that some form of new body would have to be introduced in order to live longer than that. Precisely, yeah. Though I got to say, like reading Tomoko's piece is almost strangely more comforting than mm. reading about what technologists are doing, because I think what the scientific community is trying to do here is help us live healthier for longer, and it seems like a goal that's more achievable, at least in our own lifetimes. Um, Japanese lifespans are some of the longest in the world. Uh, the average lifespan of a Japanese woman sits at 87.09 years. That's the longest in the world for women. And for men, that number is 81.05 years. And that's fourth after Switzerland, Sweden, and Australia. And I think that what the government was finding, though, was that the healthy lifespan of Japanese people was much shorter. Mm. So a survey done of 300 centenarians in Tokyo back in 2000 found that only 20% of them could really take care of themselves. And Japan switched its focus to achieving a healthy lifespan, which in 2016 stood at 74.79 years for women and 72.14 years for men. The government wants to extend those numbers by three years, by 2040. I guess, too, in a country full of older citizens, this might help with healthcare costs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, In fiscal 2021, Japan, which is both the government and the citizenry, spent a total of 11.3 trillion yen on healthcare costs. That's $76.4 billion US. And that was 2.6 times the figure from 2001, and costs are expected to surge even higher as the country gets older and there's less young people around. And, and how are scientists tackling this problem then? So one government-funded initiative that is trying to solve it is this Moonshot Research and Development Program. And that's named after the equally ambitious Apollo moon landing mission. Um, the goal of this program is to make it so that everyone will be able to live to the age of 100 without any health concerns. Yeah, that is quite ambitious. What what does the program involve? So currently it sports eight projects that involve cancer prevention, uh, gut bacteria control, and improving the function of mitochondria, which are organelles that generate the energy to power cells in the body. So for the piece, Tomoko spoke to Toshio Hirano, uh, who oversees the program at the Japan Agency for Medical Research and Development. And he said that they receive funding of about 3 billion yen a year, and that's around US $20 million. It involves between one and 2,000 scientists as well, and they're across Japan. 
Um, Hirono said that, for example, they may be able to prevent dementia by regulating the way a person diets and exercises and sleeps. And they could possibly, you know, develop exercise mimetic drugs so that people can harness the effects of exercise without actually doing the uh, physical activity. It's really fascinating. Something Watanabe said to me Mm. when he was talking about the technology approach is the idea of like putting a coin in a slot machine and just continuing this, you know, continuing life basically. Yeah. And it made me think, do you think we've entered this new phase of living where we're trying to game life? Yeah. Is it is it something that comes from that generation that tried to kind of crack codes on video games? Is there a perfect way to do life that could see us basically succeeding at it for longer? I can totally see that people look at it that way. Um, I think that maybe as a species, we have been able to achieve so many things at this point. So you may even look at the speed at which the COVID-19 vaccine was created and implemented, for example. I think that people with scientific minds, especially, look at a problem and just think there's a way to solve this. Mm. Um, Another person that Tomoko spoke to for her piece uh, was Masashi Yanagisawa, who is approaching the idea of longevity from a completely different perspective, and that's sleep research. So, Elizabeth, are you comfortable sharing with us how much sleep you get on average? Me? Well, I, I used to have quite bad insomnia when I was a teenager, so maybe this kind of screws up my my, <laughs> my average now. But uh, probably about eight hours, pretty standard. Yeah, I think I actually get a decent amount too. Uh, anywhere from 6.5 to 7.5 hours a night, I that might be on the low side. And mm-hmm. I kind of worry. If you're looking at everything from a gaming standpoint, I guess <laughs> when you don't measure up one night, you can kind of get a little bit stressed out. But For sure. I think the key is you don't, You shouldn't get stressed about um, a lack of sleep. But, you know, a lack of sleep can contribute to a lot of health issues, including depression and dementia and hardening of the arteries, which raises the risks for heart attacks and strokes. So Yanagisawa is already known for some successes in the field of sleep research, and he currently heads a 200-researcher team at the International Institute for Integrative Sleep Medicine at Scuba University, which is especially important in Japan because people here are notoriously sleep deprived. Mm-hmm. Um, where he comes in with regard to the immortality project, though, is that his team is working on the idea of artificial hibernation or suspended animation, which could have the effect of being able to kind of, as he describes it, put people on hold if they're in a critical health condition so that doctors can eventually get to work fixing them. That really does sound like a computer game, doesn't it? That really does, yeah. (laughs) Um, It kind of also brings new meaning to that idea of hospital wait time. Yeah, could it be like two years? (laughs) You're just kind of in a coma for a little while. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that with this series, we kind of also wanted to explain where people in Japan were coming from when it comes to ideas on immortality. And Alex Martin looked at mythology surrounding it, but... First, when you think of immortality myths, I guess as a New Zealander, what things do you think of? I think in uh, the Māori, the New Zealand indigenous people, in, in that culture there is a sense of death being a greyer thing, more ambiguous, I would okay. say. Um, so I have that association. And there are legends that touch on immortality to be honest, I, I didn't really think much of immortality until we started this series. Right, right. I think I've kind of picked up over, you know, time just from the media, things like the Fountain of Youth mm. or the Holy Grail, you know, being able to drink from that cup and getting everlasting life. 
So Alex talks about a legendary Chinese explorer named Shu Fu, who came to Japan in search of eternal life himself. Um, one myth he brings up, though, that I thought was really interesting was that of Yao Bikuni. And that's an 800-year-old nun who is also known as Hapya Kubikuni and Obikuni-sama, depending on the region. So according to one telling of that story, six people are invited to dinner at a rich person's home. And before they arrive, one of the guests kind of takes a peek in the window and finds the host cooking a mermaid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so the six invitees, you know, they discuss things and they're like, I don't think we should eat the mermaid. (laughs) Uh, But one of them has hearing issues and he ends up bringing some of the mermaid back home with him, I guess in a doggy bag. (laughs) Um, But his daughter mistakenly eats it and then she becomes the immortal like from this and she becomes the 800-year-old nun. So my retelling did not do this piece justice. (laughs) (laughs) I really recommend reading Alex's piece as well as Tomoko's and yours, Elizabeth. But one question I want to ask now that we're just kind of approaching the end of our discussion. (laughs) (laughs) We kind of started off talking about this issue as a way to kind of alleviate our own little existential crises (laughs) that we were having. Did this make you feel better at all? That's a big question, but... It kind of weirdly did. Like I, I felt, I felt a little bit like the Grim Reaper <laughs> while I was reporting on this. You know, asking so many people about death is such a taboo thing, but it did make me think about. It sounds cheesy, but living more consciously or being more present—just the notion that there is a time limit on our life, basically. Yeah, I think for me, you know, it was kind of like talking about it so much. It stopped me from thinking about it on my own, you know, like at night before I'm trying to get to sleep. You know, it's like I kind of got it out of my system and I think it did kind of help a little bit. I'm glad to hear you're sleeping better, Sean. (laughs) Thanks for coming on Deep Dive. Thanks. I'm back with Owen Ziegler. Hello. And Anne Loy Morgan. Hello. Two editors at the Japan Times who also play video games and write about it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think the last game I played was Candy Crush, but I eventually got bored of that. However, if it had been Candy Crush with guns, then maybe <laughs> I would have felt differently. Um, Anne and Owen, can you tell us what this game Pal World is? <laughs> well, it's not Candy Crush with guns. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Pal World is like, it's a genre mashup, right? People online call it Pokemon with guns, but it's it's so much more than that. It's a multiplayer, creature catching, open world, survival, crafting, base building game. It's a lot of things. But most importantly, it's a lot of fun. Mm. So the game comes to us from Pocket Pair, which is an indie developer from right here in Tokyo. And it's a huge success. Uh, it's now one of a handful of games ever to hit one million concurrent Steam players, uh, me included. And it's more adult than, you know, what one would expect from a game like what is often compared to, which is Pokemon, right? There's really uh, adult, mature jokes. Um, There's, of course, guns. It's a game that even the devs called a miracle. Like, since it's been released, there have been 19 million players. I can't even visualize 19 million people. And 7 million are on Xbox and 12 million are on Steam. And I'm on of the Steam players. I'm a PC player. 
And I enjoyed it. I had fun because that's what's important to me as a casual gamer. Uh, I, I have to undercut things here, and Loy, I think that is probably the rosiest description possible of uh, <laughs> Power World. Uh-oh. I think that, uh, you know, in large part, perception drives reality, right? And the conversation around uh, Power World online has not been, you know, about how great Power World is, but dare I say, palagiarism. <laughs> oh. <laughs> So a lot of people have looked at the character models uh, that are being used in this game with the pals, as they're called, these little creatures, right, with different abilities. Um, if you had called them Pokemon, uh, I think a lot of people would not have been able to tell the difference. Uh, if you get into the nitty gritty of, you know, the the shapes, the uh, uh, polygons used in these character models, uh, there are really serious concerns over whether Pocket Pair simply just lifted designs from Pokemon games in the past. Now you can say that they uh, took one design from one Pokemon and another uh, from a different Pokemon and put them together in a new PAL, right? But does that make it Pocket Pair's own design? Okay, so Owen, no PAL of PAL world then. Um, I don't know a lot about games, but I do know a thing or two about copyright. Is Nintendo mad about this? That's an interesting question. Are they mad? I don't think anyone can say. Uh, I think what we can know for sure is that Nintendo has definitely taken notice of Power World's success. Mm. Uh, Nintendo is usually very tight-lipped uh, about most things, even, even positive uh, announcements about their upcoming games. Uh, uh, but a couple days after Power World was released, and I think at that time it had you know five, six, seven million sales already, uh, Nintendo was kind of forced by Internet Discourse to release a statement uh, saying that, yes, we are aware of uh, of Power World. The curious thing is that they did not name Power World yeah. in this statement. Uh, I believe they referred to it as uh, uh, a game released in January 2024. <laughs> yeah. right? They took care to say that Nintendo did not license any Pokemon IPs mm. for you know that game or that studio. Uh, now, you can wonder whether this statement was released just to kind of get people off Nintendo's back, uh, kind of to quell the online discourse, or was it a shot across the bow of of impending legal troubles for Pocket Bear initiated by Nintendo? Nobody knows just yet. So, okay, to be fair, first of all, I'm not a lawyer, despite my mother's wishes. Um, I think that they had to say something because people online just wouldn't stop talking about it, right? And so they had to put out a statement. And the comparisons are inevitable, but to say that Power World is just a copy of Pokemon is not true. And it's also a little hypocritical of Pokemon fans to be so, you know, circling the wagon when they themselves complain about how stagnant the franchise is. And mm. when they're ready to complain about Game Freak, you know, it's, quite all right but now that this new game emerges it's suddenly like oh my god our precious ip <laughs> you know it's i can definitely i can definitely agree with that i don't know if this will mount to a defensive power world necessarily but Ooh. for the pokemon company to come out and say oh yes as you say and our treasured ip is now being infringed upon uh for anybody who grew up uh you know playing the 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 games of pokemon red blue yellow um, if you stepped back into the Pokemon world now and picked up a recent game, yeah, there would be some, you know, modern updates, but the core gameplay is essentially the same. Now, if you're stagnating your, your flagship IP for decades now, how much right do you really have to complain when somebody comes along rightly or wrongly riffing off what you've done for years, uh, but sees massive success with it? I don't, I don't know if, 
you know, the Pokemon company is all in the right here. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you know, historically, the gaming industry has just been a snake eating its own tail this entire time. Uh, games copy from each other. They take here and there all the time. So it's just, you know, if you love something, you want to see it improve, surely. So it's fair for Pokemon fans to say, hey, Game Freak, we would love to see a bit more of what we saw uh, in RCS. And we would like to see the franchise grow and evolve <laughs> just like you know <laughs> just like with the the, the 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 pokemon um i think the plagiarism accusations are unfortunate and it's overshadowing what is genuinely a fun experience do you know what i'm gonna make a wild comparison as well here um but isn't this the same argument that we had when we first got hip-hop like hip-hop would take samples from other people's songs create it into something new and then you eventually get to a point where you would get entire albums that were made totally of other people's stuff and that seems to be the culture that a lot of us grew up in right is just kind of taking property that exists and then remixing it into something else in a vacuum yes i would agree with that but i don't know if we want to give that kind of shining ambition to mm. a company like pocket pair uh, if you look back in their in their history in their game development catalog all of their games have been a mishmash of successful mechanics from other titles. Uh -huh. Now, you can say that, oh, this is all in the ether. It's all being pulled out of this kind of collective creative consciousness. But there are specific kind of musical cues and aesthetics and design choices that Pocket Pair kind of makes as a business decision just to crib and then to mash together in their own games. Their CEO as well has said that he's very positive. He's very optimistic about the use of AI to generate things that skirt copyright laws right so is this really the company that we want to push forward don't a lot of ceos say that though <laughs> they say it but do they put it into practice i was about yeah. to say wait a minute <laughs> i've seen this on x before <laughs> just because they say it doesn't necessarily mean that it should be put into practice i would say right I'm not sure if he's the only one who's ever put it into practice. I just think he's the most successful at putting it into practice. And even that in and of itself was a surprise to him. He wrote a blog post saying that the game success was a miracle to him. They they never thought it was going to be this big hit. I think they really just sat there and, and probably made a list of all the things that they liked about not just video games, because there's also some references to anime and manga in the game. In Pal World, there are these fruits that you feed to the pals to give them special powers, just like similarly to the fruits, the devil fruits that are in One Piece. So I think they just put all these things that they really liked, like concepts that they really liked, all together in a blender and was just like, run it. I do think that when we get into that kind of conversation about, hey, this is a thing I like and I want to put it in my game, it's it's the lack of creativity. It's more fan fiction than an original work. Of course, you can take things and make something that's more than the sum of its parts. But if that is all you have to pin your game on, I don't know how creative that work ends up being. That's interesting because fan fiction is actually a major part of manga culture. Well, while we still have the opportunity to play Pal World, <laughs> and you wrote a review for the Japan Times, what are your thoughts on it? First of all, I'm a casual gamer, right? I'm what internet people call a cozy gamer. Mm. So I play games to relax just on the weekends. And I think the pals are one of the least interesting parts of the game. You know, there's base building, survival mechanics, and you don't really use the pals for that. 
you you do start off catching pals and they do help you around the base but the pals themselves the individual pal types and whatnot don't factor into that the fun part of the game is crafting your base and gathering resources crafting new items and you could replace those pals with like i don't know slimes or something and it would still be fun right my rebuttal to that would be if the pals are the least important part of the game, then why would Pocket Pair choose to use these designs that are so evocative of the Pokemon universe? I just, I have to think that that was intentional. Because when they first re- announced the game, that aspect of the game went viral. So they just leaned into their strength that it became a meme like, oh, it's Pokemon with guns. Listen. When you're a small studio or you're a small business and you're just trying to get yourself out there, I'm not surprised that they leaned into it, but I now think they kind of, you know, forgive the pun, shot themselves in the foot because now that is everyone's focus. Yeah. Yeah. I can agree with that. It's almost success for this game may be more than Pocket Pair was able to handle. Right. Yeah. They didn't see this coming at all. Well, on a somewhat related note, um, what are some of the other games that the both of you are looking forward to? And we can start with you. Uh, for me, Dragon's Dogma 2, which is a huge, huge game coming out from Capcom. Uh-huh. I'm super excited about that. And uh, outside of work, you guys will never see me again because <laughs> I will be playing that game. Oh, and anything on your radar? Yeah, I'm still waiting for definitive news of the uh, DLC for Elden Ring. Right. Shadow of the Erd Tree from Software refuses to announce a uh, a firm date <laughs> okay it's infuriating kind of like playing their games but <laughs> you, you gotta you gotta pay attention you can't miss it maybe one of those can uh, break me from my slavish devotion to candy crush then and and owen thanks very much for coming on deep dive of course sure it's great My thanks again to Anne Loy Morgan, Owen Ziegler, and Elizabeth Beatty for joining me on this week's show. For more coverage on Japan and greater Asia, please check out japantimes.co.jp. I'll also take a moment to humbly ask that if you like what you've been hearing, please leave us a rating and comment on your podcasting platform of choice. It helps us reach even more people who might be interested in our work. Deep Dive is produced by Dave Cortez. Our closing music is by Oscar Boyd. And our theme music is by the Japanese musician 4L. I'm Sean McKenna. Potsukare-sama. <laughs>